Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Hey there, Blockhead listeners. Welcome to a new edition of the podcast. Where do we begin today? Today we've woken to the riots in Minneapolis and uh, a lot of the things that are going on as a result of the death of George Floyd at the hands of the police uh, in Minnesota. And uh, I just feel so overwhelmed. Um, thinking about where we're at and uh, where we've come from and how we got here, and it seems to me like, uh, and I'm I'm not I don't want to get too heavy into politics, this, but this is my podcast, right? And I feel like I have to say what I have to say, and uh, the events of of this year, the past few months whether we're talking about Trump or we're talking about COVID or the uh, protests at the Michigan State House to Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and then the riots last night and this morning. Um, All of that together, I think, is just overwhelming. And it has me feeling a great deal of sadness. And uh, it's a very sad day. And... uh, I feel despair, and I think a lot of us feel despair. I feel shame, and I feel guilt. You can call it white liberal guilt if you want to. It's what it is, but uh, it's guilt all the same. And it seems to me that this might be the saddest time of my lifetime. Uh, I don't really recall a time in my lifetime when uh, it seemed like, you know, the very air we breathed seems so thick with hate and it's it's as though uh, in some ways like COVID was some kind of manifestation of our collective ignorance and greed and hostility all at once I don't believe in you know those kinds of biblical plagues but it does seem to uh, coincide with this period of terrible ill will Uh, I am not a violent person and I would never advocate violence as a vehicle for change but uh, a lot of people have pointed out today you know that Martin Luther King said that when the voices are the voices of the unheard when that goes on long enough they will make themselves known and you can't condemn the one without acknowledging and condemning the conditions they live with and struggle with every day and uh, I'm sorry but being asked to wear a mask for the public good to stave off a pandemic whether it's Michigan or anywhere else is not such a condition but 
the uh, systematic suppression and killing of a people is. I thought the election of Barack Obama was uh, the first step towards a better world, but every time we seem to take a step forward, somehow or another, the forces of hate and ignorance and ill will uh, push us back three steps. And uh, I don't have any, I don't have any answers for how we get past this. I, I just don't. I don't have any great. You know, I can't make any great pronouncements here on a comics podcast. But I do know that that we have to find a way to overcome the divisions between us and stop glorifying some kind of imagined past. We have to work to build and imagine a better world, a world where we live side by side with one another, with dignity and, and love and respect, a place where we don't where we don't encourage hate of our differences, but instead we, we revel in our shared commonalities and we delight in the things that make us unique. Where does comics come in to all of that, you know? Where does comics fit? <laughs> you know, it doesn't seem like we can tackle such a big thing. It seems overwhelming, something that's far beyond the reach of cartoonists. But cartoonists like Tahid Bondia, uh, Kevin Much, Khalid Birdsong, and today's guest, uh, Jan Elliott, all create comics that realize such worlds where uh, people of different races and different sexual orientations, different genders, different philosophies and religions share their lives with one another freely and equally. I know. <clears throat> I know. You know. We all know. <laughs> Comics and cartoonists aren't going to change the world. Art's not going to change the world. But we, they are part of, they do contribute to the conversation. They are an important part of the conversation. They are ways in which we express our voices. Voices that may not have a platform otherwise find it through comics. And as that conversation goes on and, and, goes on and evolves, the momentum from that discussion will result in change. I do believe that. We will continue, you know, to do to struggle with disparities uh, across the the board. But it seems to me that in my lifetime, while we are where we are right now, that conversation has moved us forward on a number of issues and uh, and because of that I think there's hope
I don't want to overstate, you know, um, the political implications of Jan's work or Tahid's work or Kevin's or Khalid's. I mean, they're not writing political treatises. They're not writing polemics. They're not doing op-ed pieces for the Times or for other media outlets. They're making comics. But in art, in comics, what we do, what we do as artists is we create. We create worlds that uh, where we imagine a better place sometimes. Sometimes we express thoughts and feelings about the world we inhabit now. But overall, what we do is we try to create, not to construct or build borders or boundaries between us. We create for the opposite reason. We create to knock down barriers and boundaries between us. And the goal, it seems to me, of every creative work, every work that an artist has made or a musician has made or an actor has played a part in or an author has written, the goal of every creative work is to inspire someone, somewhere, anywhere, whomever, wherever they are, to pick up a pencil, a drum, a guitar, a needle and thread, a hammer, and to encourage and inspire them to add and build upon what has gone before, to add to the conversation and move it forward. We have to keep doing our work. We will keep doing our work. Despite how dark things may seem, how impossible the odds may seem, we will keep doing our work and contributing to the dialogue. We will break down those barriers. We will reach across divisions. And someday, maybe not in my lifetime, hopefully in yours, someday the world we imagine will come to be. That's my hope. And I think when we are faced with what we're faced with today, this year, we have to find hope and we have to find ways to keep hope alive. And we're not politicians, we're not lawyers, we're not police officers. We are cartoonists. <laughs> we're artists and in our small way by working every day, we keep that hope alive. So Jan Elliott, Jan Elliott makes a wonderful comic strip called Stone Soup. And Jan describes it as a feminist comic strip. And indeed it is. But it's feminist from, because it's from, well, I mean, define feminist, you know. I mean, feminist is, is, in my way, a belief that all things should be equal, you know. 
There, there should not be disparities between men and women in the world, in the workplace, at the how, home, in the home, or elsewhere, that we should be on equal footing with one another. And this is the world that Jan creates in Stone Soup. And when she started it, there wasn't a voice on the comics page expressing the concerns and, and the life of single moms. And Jan Elliott's Stone Soup was the embodiment of the comics embodiment of that experience for women on the comics page when there hadn't been and wasn't any other. Uh, it was groundbreaking, you know, is groundbreaking. But as I said, it's not a polemic. It doesn't keep anybody out. It invites you in. And it creates a world that is funny and vibrant and alive and filled with life and love. And it's a wonderful strip, and I love it a lot. And I hope you've got it in your local paper. Uh, if you haven't, I hope you check it out on Go Comics because that's where it can be found. And I hope you'll dive into the world of Stone Soup because it's a wonderful comic strip. And if we look at it with a slight nod to politics, uh, we can say that it, it imagines a world that is egalitarian and a world we can happily share and uh, a positive world. And I think that's what Tahid does with crabgrass. And as important as I think uh, a problem like Jamal was and is as a voice, I think crabgrass goes a step farther in showing us a world that, that moves beyond uh, our systematic problems. A world where where two young kids of different races can live and love and grow up together and love each other as friends do. So, thus, end, thus endeth the, uh, the polemic, if you will, today. But it's a tough day. And uh, I felt I had to say something. So, let's move forward, okay? Let's, uh, let's move forward and talk about comics. Let's talk about Stone Soup and Jan Elliott. So, uh, it's, as I said, it's a wonderful comic strip, and Jan is just a great guest. Up. This, this has to be, you know, one of my favorite conversations. It's just, it was just so free and, and uh, relaxed, and uh, I really enjoyed talking to Jan, and I hope I get a chance to do it again sometime. It's going to be in two parts. Because we did, we did, it did go on for a while. We had a lot to say to each other. It was great. And uh, so it'll be in two parts. I'm going to drop the second part really quickly uh, because I noticed I'm not really sure whether you guys want to hear the shows all in one big bunch or you want to hear them in a couple of parts. But uh, I'm going to drop it in, in two parts that are, you know, one right after the other. So one is today, another might be Monday, okay? So be on the lookout for it. It's going to come quick. Might even be sooner than that, I don't know. Uh, but um, anyway, I'm experimenting with how quickly they go out. And, and um, what else did I want to say? Uh, there was something else on my mind, and it's now slipping my, my mind. Uh, 
Let me let me pause for a second and uh, see if I can remember. Oh yeah, now I remember. Uh, so the conversation actually started by Jan asking me a little bit about myself, and so you're gonna hear my the first voice you'll hear is mine, and uh, talking about myself, and we sort of get right into the conversation before I've even introduced her <laughs> to the show. So be prepared for that. The first 10, 15 minutes or so are really Jan and I just saying hi and getting to know one another very informally and very much about talking about um, just everything. And uh, and then we get into the discussion about comics and Stone Soup and, and all of that. And so, uh, so it has a little different beginning than usual. Okay, enough of me. Let's get right to it. Jan Elliott and myself in conversation. I started off as a cartoonist as a kid, and then I, uh, you know, that was going nowhere, so I studied painting in school. Because you know what they do to you when you're, at least when we were young in school, they didn't like cartoonists. So, um, uh-huh, right. so then yeah. I started painting and all that stuff. And, and anyway, it eventually led to graduate school. And then lucky enough for me, I found some gigs teaching and that became my life. And, so great. Uh, yeah. And that eventually just evolved in, back into comics again because that's where my interests were. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I sort of fooled them. You know, I came in as a painter and then <laughs> I gradually subverted it, you know, to comics. That's and, so great. Yeah, what university but, is it on Long Island? Uh, Adelphi University. Oh, that's great. Do you know Ben Saunders? Ben Saunders. That name is awful familiar. Well, he uh, runs the cop. He created and runs the comics program at the University of Oregon. The the. Um, oh no, I don't know him, but I do know the name. Yeah, he's wonderful. He's he's like a Shakespeare professor. He came in as a literature guy and then started a comics program, and uh, so he's not an art guy. And they don't teach. Um, they don't teach it from an art standpoint. They, they teach it. It's more multi, multi-discipline well, and it's through the English department. Yeah. And, and that's a phenomenon. It's a really interesting phenomenon that a lot of comics programs are being taught through literature programs, through the English department and yeah, yeah. rather than be, you know, and it's so funny. I remember, um, going to, uh, there was a, a thing at Billy Ireland in 2012, and I had just mm-hmm. become chair of the art department. And I, I was very fortunate because I, I was given the opportunity to go to this thing in Ohio when the Billy Ireland library was opening. It was a real big, exciting. I'm sorry I wasn't there. I, I couldn't go to that one. It would have been great. To, oh, it to was gone. fun. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was so much fun and so yeah. exciting and moving, really, Yeah, you know. Um, because, you know, this was a, I mean, really, you know, Ohio State opens big, beautiful library and uh, and the collection that's there and everything. It was just really yeah. moving. Yeah. Anyway, I noted that there weren't any representatives from the art department there. There were some from the English department. And, you know, it, it just came to, and, and among the people who were there attending as well. Uh, most were from either film studies programs or English departments, uh-huh. literature uh, programs, but none from art departments. And I found it to be the weirdest thing. But it's almost as though art departments have this idea, you know, uh-huh. um, that, or at least they just kept comics at a distance for some I reason. I think so. I absolutely think so. I don't, I don't think, I mean, there's still this argument about if you're a cartoonist, are you an artist? You know, it's mm-hmm. like really uh, <laughs> at this point, really, yeah. you know, it's ridiculous. Yeah, so, it is. So having an art program, which, you know, we have an art program and, and I think, I don't know that 
if I, if I hadn't come in as a, a painter, collage artist beforehand, I'm not sure that I would have, that they ever would have been looking for a cartoonist. Uh-huh, you know? uh-huh. Right. And, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. And so it's just through the back door in a way I, I got in and, uh, yeah. and I've yet to find like tenured art uh, cartoonists, you know, at universities. I, th- I don't know if I'm the only tenured cartoonist, but I think th- there may be a few here and there. And I know Linda Berry is teaching now. And uh, Oh, she's, yeah. And she is, she kind of, She's such an unusually wonderful person. Have you ever heard her speak? No, I have not. I know there are, are you, YouTube videos, but uh, I haven't I haven't checked them out. She's inspirational you, like that. Oh my god, she's such a wonderful speaker. Um I've had I've been in a workshop of hers and then I she came and spoke at the National Cartoonist Society um convention in Portland uh I don't know, maybe 3 years ago or 4 years ago and I mean, the room was spellbound. She, her mind is amazing. She is oh. just amazing. Oh, yeah. My gosh. yeah. I, she's I just... so bright. She's just so bright. You know, it's, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I hesitate to say she's more writer than artist, mm-hmm. but I just think that would be unfair. She's simply an artist. And that is, you know, in, and, in the... and everything she does is, is what she does, you know, I mean, absolutely in the broadest sense of the word she's, yeah, she's, yeah. You know, when we think of artists i mean and and there's that i mean the the cart the word cartoonist is a wonderful word i mean unfortunately you know some some people have this tendency to look down upon it but when you think of what a cartoonist is it is an artist who is an artist in a very broad sense of the definition it encompasses you know multimedia and uh, right, right you know drawing uh, uh you know storyboarding conceiving of of uh, time-based work in the sense that you know you need a progression of images and you write both visually and Correct. verbally mm-hmm. right. so it, it's an, yeah you know it's a it's an honor to be called cartoonist i think i think so i definitely think so yeah, yeah. I absolutely so. Well, this is this is great. We haven't even started to talk about you. Uh, <laughs> no, already. it's so interesting. Well, I was going to encourage you, um, mm-hmm. if you ever wanted to reach out to a, a fellow in another comics program, uh, Ben Saunders is a wonderful person. He, I, I taught a class for him once, and um, he's just a lovely guy. Uh, he's British. He has this great British accent, and uh, he's. Uh, I don't know. How old are you? I'm. Uh, what am I now? I just turned sixty on Monday. Okay, so he's probably closer to 50, Okay, uh, coming up on 50. So he's a little bit younger, <clears throat> but um, he grew up on, you know, in, in comics and, and in the world, uh, especially, uh, well, I don't know, he's a big Peanuts fan, but also, you know, all the adventure comics and, oh, well, all of it. Anyway, he's a great guy. So if you ever want to reach out to a colleague, he, he's, he'd be very receptive. Well, actually, I, I, I will. Uh, maybe it'd be kind of cool to have him on the show. Uh, oh, yeah. He's very knowledgeable. And boy, yeah. he has no problem talking, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so what did, what did you teach for it? Uh, I taught a creating comics class. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And um, it was, you know, again, interdisciplinary. So we only had, you know, we had a few students who really were artists and drew beautiful comics. Mm-hmm. And the rest were, you know, just fans and interested and coming at it from the uh, <clears throat> the writing standpoint. And so the class was much more about, um, 
you know, it wasn't, it wasn't in an art studio. It was about writing comics and mm. illustrating them to your best of your ability, you know, but understanding <clears throat> storyline and, and it wasn't required that you had to be funny. It could be graphic novelish, whatever, you know. Um, and it, it had a lot to do with um, working um, consistently sort of on a deadline, you know, mm. that, that there were obligations to create. Right. You know, to decide in the beginning what your comic was going to be about and then create installments each week and the students exchanged installments and we talked about it. And, you know, it was my first time uh, teaching mm -hmm. and um, I think I did a pretty good job, but, you know, it was a challenge, you know, trying to introduce them to some, uh, you know, a little bit to the history of comics and mm -hmm. and uh, the methods, a little bit of the methods. Um just basic stuff. Cause again, it wasn't an art class. It was through the English department, but, right, sure. um, but you know, you can always give people some basic, you know, hands, feet, faces, expression, perspective, um, yeah. understanding how to use Photoshop to the best of its ability so that you don't screw up what you've already, what you've done <laughs> because <laughs> you didn't know how to scan it and you know, right. that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I, I teach a visual narrative class that has uh, it's a mix of students. A few of them are from the art department. A lot of them come from uh, the communications department. Some come from computer science because they're in this video games minor. Oh, OK. Yeah. And so they come with uh, a wide array of abilities when it comes to drawing. Uh -huh, and uh -huh. uh, I've had some wonderful uh -huh. comics turned out by kids who have very rudimentary graphic skills. Uh -huh, uh, uh -huh. Although that course has become more and more about storyboarding as time goes oh. on to so the connection oh. to the video games, Meyer. But right. close enough, you know. But, <clears throat> right, right. I mean, sometimes you meet these kids. I, I've had them in my studio who, you know, some, oh God, this one kid. And I did see him. I have seen him recently. He's a 20 something now, but. At the time he came to see me, he was maybe in the eighth grade, uh, kind of lower economic group, mm -hmm. um, terrible acne, terribly shy, barely could speak to me, you know, and uh, to the point where I kind of wondered, why are you in my studio? You know, mm -hmm. why, why are we here? And then he started showing me his stuff, which his drawing was, you know, very, very basic. But the words, oh, my God, the, you know, the emotion and the complexity. I mean, it was wonderful stuff. And I ended up, you know, telling him, I, I really hoped he figured out a way <clears throat> to continue on, at least at the community college level, you know, mm -hmm. to, um, cause I mean, what he had to say was incredible and, and not everybody has that either, you know? Yeah. Um, and in a way I think you can learn to draw more easily than you can learn to figure out what to say. Yeah. Yeah, you know. that, yeah, absolutely. Because that, <clears throat> yeah. the, the the message or whatever it, whatever it is you have to say is something that's innate in some sense, and mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. you know comes right. from experience and and, right. and who well, you are and yeah. yeah. But but when it's uh, but drawing is a skill, yeah, that to a certain degree can be learned. Anybody can learn it, and kids, all kids, draw up to a point. <clears throat> yes, yeah. You know, right. uh, mm -hmm. so, yeah. And, and it's one thing that I found, too, is is that in, in this storyboarding class, uh, every almost every student's drawing improves greatly from the beginning to the end. Right, right, right. Depending on whatever level. But a certain kind of drawing is not necessary for every particular kind of comic. And sure, you don't, sure. You don't have to draw like Neil Adams for 
every comic strip, you know, right, or a comic right. book, and right. and uh, to to each his own, right? And uh, <clears throat> oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's yeah. pretty cool. So uh, yeah. so this this is great, interesting. So that that was kind of a an interesting experience. Have you taught again since that time? Or? You know, I haven't. I am uh, older than you, and mm-hmm. uh, and more you know I've, i'm only doing my cartoon once a week now right and i i took i taught that class right at the moment i went from dailies to sundays only oh. and it was convenient because i had the time to do it mm-hmm. but um i just found it exhausting <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> i i liked my students uh ben did everything to make it a great experience i mean we only i was the class was limited to 13 and um, they were very interesting and it was a great group. But the responsibility, um, I mean, admire what you do so much because the responsibility of putting together a meaningful experience for them. Mm-hmm. And it was like a 400 level class. I mean, I oh. had to, you know, um, <clears throat> and I just it was just not a commitment I wanted at that point yeah. when I was, you know, at the at the moment in my life when I was downsizing so that um, I love to travel and that was my was my goal to be able to travel more and you know he only wanted me to teach one term a year every other year even but I just um, I just found it yeah too exhausting and um, so I I declined to continue He, he asked if I would do it again but I just decided not to. Well, you know, and there's no there's no shame in that, you know. I mean, it's just a matter of what wh- where you want your life to go and what priorities you have. It's kind of a yeah. great experience to have. I um it it and once you get into it like anything else, you know, it be, you become obviously you just become more proficient at it and it's not quite as taxing but it I is know. always you know it's always pretty <laughs> overwhelming and yes. you know, this this uh recent change to online teaching which happens so quickly has been just oh my gosh the amount of work it's like going back to the beginning and starting all over again i'm and, sure yeah and so the experience that you felt there i kind of, i'm kind of feeling now even after having taught at adelphi for 20 plus years uh, i'm it's like i'm i've had to start all over again uh-huh, in the last yeah. two months and yeah. uh, it's been a lot of work and yeah. it's stop and uh, yeah. but at the same time, I'm, I'm, this semester I'm doing a history of animation course, and I'm really, while it's just huge amount of work doing the recording and the videos and the whole bit, it's also so gratifying because I love the history of comics. I love the history of animation. I just love this stuff. That's <laughs> and, so great. You know, and so it, it's oh, gratifying. So great. It's a lot of work, but it's gratifying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's I great. I hope the kids get that. You know, that's the one thing. Anytime I'm in a class, I don't ever think about necessarily. I mean, I, you come across a couple of kids who are really serious, and you hope they go forward, and you want to help them to to the greatest degree that you can. But at the same time, you know, you've got a lot of students who never will and right. uh, have no intention to do so. And all I really hope I pass along to them is a passion for the subject and, mm-hmm. you know that maybe they'll go search out some comics or or an animated film they never have all right 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 for. yeah you yeah know? that's yeah it's true yeah you, you do have to um uh look at it if in the long the long haul like that you know that it and and i mean i used to have a lot of eighth graders come through the studio because mm-hmm. they have these 
you know, mentorship things they're supposed to do, visit people and that kind of stuff. And I can't tell you how many times I've gotten a letter from somebody that, you know, I don't know if you remember me. And of course, unfortunately, I don't, because if it was, you know, 15 years ago, I, you know, and they were here for a day. Um, But, uh, you know, they'll talk about what a meaningful experience it was. It mattered to them that, you know, they haven't forgotten it. Um, uh, It was fascinating. You know, I mean, it does make an, it does, it is stuff they will carry forward in one way or another. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Meeting, you know, meeting a cartoonist and meeting you, it must be just like, wow, that, that, that's got to be an experience that imprints on their mind, you know, well, How go to a cartoonist studio. Yeah, I hope, you know, I hope. And I mean, it's not that I'm so, you know, amazing or famous, but, but I mean, it is just being in a studio. I know personally, I love visiting other people's studios and kind mm-hmm. of seeing, you know, how they work and what the environment is and, um, and then, the, you know, the reality of it, you know, it looks like magic when you're not used to doing it every day, like I am. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, right. It, it looks like magic it's... to them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a wonderful thing about drawing, you know, when we were kids, you know, I mean, I used to, I'm a little, little guy, and I was always a little guy, and I used to get picked on. One way to get out of getting picked on was to draw. And so I could do a drawing and if somebody start pushing you around a little bit and you just find out what they wanted you to draw, you know, whether it was Snoop, uh-huh. Charlie Brown, or uh-huh. Spider-Man or whatever. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. drawing was a kind of magic. Yes. And it, I think kids do find it. And well, maybe some adults still find it a kind of magic. I know? think so. I think so. I mean, even at a book signing, when you just do a little sketch for somebody <laughs> under your autograph, I mean, they just go bananas you know yeah wow it's like so i'm so happy to be able to make you happy so easily yeah (laughs) Yeah. and what and and this is true i think in particular of of your work on stone soup you just make it look so effortless i mean that's one of the things i just love about your work is it just looks effortless it's just like you breathed it you know oh that's so nice what a nice thing to say that's really nice thank you uh, well, and it's, and you know, it's true. I guess I should say right now, you know, if folks don't realize by now, we're, we're talking to Jan Elliott, the cartoonist <laughs> behind the wonderful Stone Soup comic strip. And uh, this is a real pleasure. So welcome to Blockhead, Jan. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure for me too. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. So, you know, we were just talking about teaching and talking about uh, mentoring and one of the things I didn't realize, but I think I just came across somewhere, was that you you mentored a little bit with Lynn Johnston. Uh, I, I did. I did. Um, I, Lynn, uh, I reached out to Lynn um, during, well, I had been a fan, of course, for years. And Lynn and I are actually um, pretty close to the same age. It's oh. just that she got started much sooner. I, I didn't get syndicated until I was 45. So wow. she was, okay. she'd been in the business a lot longer than I had. And when she, I don't know if you remember the Lawrence series where the, <clears throat> the next door neighbor boy came out to his parents oh. and got thrown out of the house. Sure. Of course. Yeah. <clears throat> very, very famous yeah, series in, in her career. And um, unfortunately uh, I, I heard that there was a place in Oregon that, was just uh, mobbing her with hate mail. Mm-hmm. It was coming from Southern Oregon, and and you know she took a lot of blowback for doing that, and she was completely prepared for that. And and 
and of course it was a beautiful series and and there was nothing anyone could object to if they read the whole thing you know from start to finish and it was a lovely story but anyway i felt a little guilty about my fellow oregonians and i wrote her a fan letter about how impressed i was with how she had handled it um and i did in fact include some of my own work because you know i was uh, wishfully, I, at that time, I was still doing um, just a weekly cartoon for my a couple local newspapers and okay. not syndicated yet. And so I sent my work to her, and she called me on a Sunday morning. And honestly, I was in the shower. My husband came and got me. <laughs> and, you know, I got out of the shower sure. and uh, and uh, spoke with her. And it was so it was so kind. She just called to say, well, to say thank you, but to say how, that she liked my work and she was very encouraging. And and she said, you know, I, I really think you're going to get syndicated. I think it might take you a year, but um, I really think, you know, this is going to happen for you. And boy, I needed to hear that at that wow. point in time. And so, um, and and in fact, she was right. And, and there was nothing she could have done to influence that because it doesn't really work that way. Syndicates don't really care you know, what other people mm-hmm. think. But um, <laughs> <laughs> as it happens, I am with the same syndicate that syndicates for better or for worse. But um, but I had been sending them my work regularly for quite some time. So, uh, so yes, she was really helpful. And then, you know, she gave me a, a, quite a bit of business advice, which was very helpful because the whole the whole thing was sort of a scary, scary enterprise. As, as it turns out, I had nothing to fear because uh, my syndicate is a lovely it's a great company and you know nobody was trying to take advantage of me or anything like that but you just don't know what you you have to sign i mean what they ask you initially is to sign a 25-year contract oh wow and it is you know uh i mean there's ways to get out of it if there's no money coming forward of course Mm -hmm. but um but it's daunting you know and uh so i i was able to reduce mine to 20 because i just thought that was just excessive um, mm-hmm. especially considering my age when I started, <laughs> but they were great to work with. But, but yes, she was a person I could call and ask advice from. And I, I was concerned about various aspects of production and she's just been a great friend ever since. Um, oh, that's wonderful. She's been just lovely. Uh, Ted and I, my husband and I were able to visit her when she lived up in, uh, uh, near, near, um, well in Ontario, North Ontario. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. she lives in Vancouver and we were supposed to go see her in June, but uh, thank you, COVID. I'm not sure yeah. any of us are going to be making that trip. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, she's she's been very inspiring to me. Um, a, a lot of discussions about work, how you manage the deadlines. I, I really got some great advice from her about about how important it was to stay ahead of deadlines because if you are always, you know, if every week is critical, you know, that you're finished by three o'clock on Friday or whatever it is, whatever your deadline is. Um, and syndicates are serious about deadlines. I mean, they fine you if you don't get it in on time, you know, they fine you. They do because, well, they have to, because there are some really flaky cartoonists in the world. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it, you know, if you, <laughs> yeah, tell me something, tell you something you don't know. Right. <clears throat> and if, um, I mean, if you are late, it can cost them money because then they're, especially in the old days before everything was digital, you know, they're sending things out FedEx overnight yeah. instead yeah. of, you know, by normal channels. And 
um, you know, people have to work overtime to make it happen. And, you know, so anyway, she but but the main reason not to be on top of deadline all the time is that you want to have you don't want the job to be a, a, a ball and chain. You know, if if like she said, you know, if if somebody calls and says, hey, we think we can come visit you, you know, next week for two days, she said, you want to be able to do that. Yeah. You want to be able to stop work. And the only way you can stop work for something that's that you really want to do, that's fun, that's family, whatever, is um, you have to have a cushion, you know, and you'll mm-hmm. be much happier throughout your long career if you have a cushion. And I have always uh, taken that to heart and always tried to make sure I had at least a week, extra week under my belt. Um, and, and also for mental health, you know, you have a bad day, you don't feel funny every day. You don't want to be in the studio every day. Maybe you have an ill parent or, you know, I mean, things happen in life. Um, and, uh, you know, you need to just be able to blow off a day now. <laughs> so, sure. Yeah. So she's, she's just been such great moral support for me. And, uh, and she also is the person who introduced me to Charles Schultz, which was uh, another great gift. Of, oh my of, gosh. Well, tell me gift. about that. <laughs> well, Lynn and, and Sparky were very good friends. Um, mm-hmm. And as, as he was also very good friends with Kathy Geiswhite and many other cartoonists. Um, and uh, one of the great things about knowing him, so I'll tell you how I met him. Mm-hmm. Um, we were at, I think, my very first Reuben, uh, you know, National Cartoonist Society Reuben Awards event. It was in New York at the Waldorf Astoria. It was the 50th anniversary of the NCS. Oh. So it was very, you know, it was big lovely. Deal. It was a big deal. It was yeah. really lovely. And she she had sponsored me to get into the NCS. And so she came to find me at breakfast first morning, you know, and she hauls me across the dining room to meet Sparky. And and the poor man is, you know, he's just leaving the buffet line with, uh, you know, a, one plate with a Danish and the other <laughs> plate with a cup of coffee and a saucer. And he had a bit of a shake. And uh-huh. so he's, he's shaking, you know, these, I can hear the cup rattling a little bit uh-huh. and, you know, he just wants to get to his table <clears throat> and Lynn stops him cause she was effervescent and, you know, and loved him and had that relationship. And so I, I didn't feel like it was a great meeting. I mean, you know, she introduced me and, you know, yeah, yeah. He sat down and I thanked her and I felt really awkward. So, <clears throat> um, after we got home from that weekend, uh, and I have to say, getting to see Charles Schultz in a tuxedo dance with Kathy Geiswhite in front of an orchestra at the Waldorf Astoria was oh quite a treat. Yeah. It was really quite a treat. He's Yeah. And he was a handsome man. And I mean, he was just a, a sweetheart. So anyway, after the weekend, I came back and, and I felt kind of bad. And, and my first book had been published by Andrews McMeal. And so I decided to mail him a copy and um, and just thank him and tell him I, I felt, you know, kind of bad about interrupting his breakfast. Whatever I said, you know, felt like it was a bit awkward, but that I really admired his work. And uh, I had learned a lot about cartooning from Peanuts, especially, uh, actually, I, I really modeled my lettering after his. I thought his lettering was just so beautiful and Anyway, uh, about a week later, on a Monday morning, he called me, and I honestly thought a friend was playing a joke on me. 
you know, this person sure. on the other end of the line at nine in the morning says, uh, is Jan Elliott there? This is she. Well, this is Charles Schultz. And I'm just like gobsmacked. It's like, no. But it was. It was him. Oh, and, gosh. you know, he, he loved my book. He loved my work. And I have to tell you, I had sent him my work before I was syndicated a couple of times. And he does not accept um, – he's not a very willing participant if you haven't gotten to a certain level of accomplishment. In mm. other words, he doesn't – I mean, you can imagine in his world how busy and yeah. all the demands on his time. So yep. um, I had – I think the only thing I had ever gotten from back from him was because I got kind of insistent about wanting feedback rudely, I suppose. Um, he wrote me back and said, well, frankly, you don't draw very well. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, man. Ouch. But, you know, at the time I had a lot to learn. You know, I was still just doing once a week while I had a full time job. I wasn't able to give it my all, you know, and I also had a family. So, you know, my life was was pretty hectic. But but anyway, he. We had this lovely conversation. Quite fortunately, um, you know, I I am also a bit of a I, I do love the history of comics as well, and I was a big fan of Percy Crosby, which is one of his was one of his very Skippy. favorite yeah Skippy one of his very favorite cartoons. So we were able to have that conversation, and and then uh, and then we were friends. And because he I live on the West Coast, he lives on the West Coast. He he would hold a party every Christmas at the opening of the Snoopy on ice um, show, you know, at his ice rink, right? Yeah. He does this ice capades kind of thing. <clears throat> and he would invite any cartoonist who could get there with their family. And uh, you were on your own to get there and get in a hotel, but he hosted you at the, at the performance and he hosted everyone for a beautiful breakfast the next morning. And it was the most wonderful event. Uh, Ted and I got to go about three times because other than, unlike the other cartooning events, which are so enormous, mm -hmm. um, this is like 50 people, you know, oh, and wow. there's no agenda. And, you know, Sparky came and sat with us and oh. asked us how we were doing. And, and at one point he said he had this idea. What did I think of this idea of Linus having a Bible that the zipper was stuck on, you know, and he's trying to work out. The, I mean, you know, and I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> you know, hey, would you like to see the studio? Follow me, you know. Oh my God, yes, I do. I want to see your studio. Yes, I do. So uh, it was, it was really wonderful um, getting, having a chance to get to know him a bit. I only knew him for about probably four years before he passed away, maybe three or four. Um, but it was one of my uh, more wonderful experiences. And thank you, Lynn, for making that happen. Um... Hey, listeners, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you're enjoying today's interview. If you are and you want to show support, head on over to my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. At Patreon, you can contribute as little as a dollar on a regular basis to ensure the longevity of this podcast. Your support will help keep it not only commercial-free, but free to the listening public. And in exchange, you'll get some pretty neat stuff. There are at least three different tiers. Each level offers its own distinct rewards. So check it out today at patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Any amount is welcome, and your support is greatly appreciated. Thanks again, and that's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. So, 
yeah, I mean, it's there are some wonderful cartoonists in the world, and I, I feel so grateful that I had a chance to get to know a few of them, especially the older ones that we've lost now, you know, oh, yeah. um, Charles sure. Schultz being one of the main ones. Um, I would have loved to have met Walt Kelly, too, but I oh. I was able to meet his wife, and that was uh, That's pretty cool. Treat. Yeah, that was pretty cool, yeah. yeah. Who she, is a, car- well, a cartoonist in her own right, Selby Kelly. Yeah, right. Yeah. <clears throat> animator yeah mm-hmm. yeah and, and did did she meet walt at disney or um you know i think uh she was a new yorker and okay. well when i met her she was living in new york i she probably was in los angeles at some point she worked mm-hmm. for warner brothers I think. Oh, okay okay <clears throat> um but there was a lot of intermingling you know bill melinda yeah, of course, from one of course. to the other yeah i think she told me that she met him at a pogo party <laughs> They used to have pogo parties, and people would dress up as pogo characters. Oh, oh my gosh! And read the comics. Oh, what? That's, I mean, I know. How interesting is that? That's, I know, wow. isn't that cool? Yeah, it is. It's very cool. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. He'd dress up as Albert the Alligator. But... I don't know. I really don't. Yeah. <laughs> but that's great. Wow. I know. I thought it I would was love a great to have story. been a fly on the wall for that. Wouldn't you though? I know. <laughs> really and truly, yeah, that would have been so, great. Before we leave, talk, leave Charles Schultz aside for a minute. Um, what what elements from Peanuts do you feel as though were had the biggest impact on you, aside from the lettering? <clears throat> um, well, you know, it was one of the one of the things that where he broke ground. Um, unlike his peers, he didn't ever buy gags. His material was extremely personal. It was all his. He didn't ask anybody for ideas. He didn't ask anybody um, to preview his ideas. You know, oh, well, other than he, he did ask me about Linus and the Bible and the zipper. <laughs> but, you know, he was very proud of the fact that it was all it was all so original. And he wasn't because, you know, the Dennis the Menace and a lot of that, you know, post-war uh, mm-hmm newspaper comics those people all had writers right they had gag writers and they considered the cartoonist was the artist the cartoonist was the person who drew and that was the most important part and he um really broke ground in making it so personal and so much um so original from his heart and not afraid to have it be a little melancholy sometimes and be a little sad be a little touching and it didn't always have to be laugh out loud um and then the simplicity of it, you know, the simplicity of the line and the uh, layout of the frames. I mean, it's such a simple comic that it's hard to realize how well all that was done. But, yeah. um, you know, he didn't ever get into, you know, doing a lot of backgrounds. I mean, it worked really well just to have, you know, one character and a curb or one character and a wall right. um, or a sidewalk, you know. <clears throat> but um, I think the... The fact that it was all so original and so personal and that he really he really set the bar for that. Um, and, and then other cartoonists took up the 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 torch, you know, and, and continued. I mean, Walt Kelly was certainly incredibly original. Brenda Starr was original, you know, and from there it became well, people still bought gags because when I got syndicated, I got letters from all these gag writers. It's like, wow. really? <laughs> I know it was kind of. <laughs> really? I don't know how anybody could write for me, but okay, you know, maybe. Well, I'll tell you. Um, there is uh, there I'm there is a lovely man who lives in New York, 
-hmm. His name is Mark Bill Gray. And he was the only person who contacted me who I felt was in tune enough. I mean, a lot of the gag writers were older gentlemen, forgive Mm -hmm. me, um, not of my generation in a way. Mm -hmm. And to write for a a feminist comic strip without resulting in a lot of cliche was, you know, would be pretty difficult for them. I mean, the samples that they gave me, you know, it's like, no, (laughs) but, uh, but Mark, uh, yeah. Mark uh, was um, also a single dad or, or a divorced dad. So he had you know, experience in that realm of you know, patchwork family and all that. And very sensitive man. And my, there was a period of time when my father um, had Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And I was his main, uh, not caregiver, he was in a facility, but I managed all of his, I managed his life. Wow. And that happened just five years into my syndication oh, and I, and it went on for a long time. I mean, yeah. my father was, you know, kind of declining for 10 years. So there were some, a few years in there when, um, I was really struggling, uh, to come up with meaningful <laughs> material. Yeah. Uh, it's very, it's very hard to write when you are sad, you know, yeah. it's just very hard. So anyway, I, I did, uh, buy gags for Mark and Mark wrote uh, some really, really nice material for me. Um, not, you know, I, I wish I could have bought more from him, but, uh, but it was, it was really helpful during that time period to, to have somebody else, you know, sending ideas my, my way. And, you know, even if it isn't the, if you don't use it exactly as it's sent, just it gets something going. And of course you yeah. pay for that, you know, you, you pay if anything that, that helps. So, so I did. I did take work from Mark. I will always be thankful for that. Um, and then, as my own daughters got older and started to have their own children, um, one of my daughters is extremely funny, and I did start um, actually because she was also in a bit of a little bit of financial straits when her children were young. It's like, well, send me stories because <laughs> I pay for gags. So, uh, <laughs> and she actually did send me uh, quite a few great, just wonderful antics, you know, that her kids, <clears throat> kids were doing that, that gave me uh, sparked material and that kind of sure. thing. So occasionally a reader will send me something that, or a friend will <clears throat> give me an idea that is too good to be true. And if I can get permission, like if they're telling me a story about their teenager, you know, I have to ask the teenager, do you mind if I represent this? Because um, I don't use people's personal stories without permission. But, you know, you do have some lovely things laid at your feet every now and then um, that are just too good to pass up. So, But, but you know, 95% of Stone Soup has always been just out of my head and my heart. So. Right. And it reads that way. You know, it reads is a very personal uh, strip. And it's it's interesting um, that you talked about that in relationship to Charles Schultz. I just uh, did interviews with um, Marcus Hamilton and Ron Ferdinand. Uh, oh, nice people. Very nice. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so, yeah. so sweet. And it's uh-huh. so nice and, and really so generous with their time. And we had a great time. And, I, and it was really interesting because, you know, I'm a big Charles Schultz fan, but I was always a Dennis the Menace fan too, growing up. And it's interesting. You, compare, I have yeah. to, I have to say yeah. just a minute about Dennis the Menace. Yeah, I I learned so much about panel layout. Oh yeah, and the use of black yeah. from from Hank Ketchum's cartoons. Oh my gosh, 
His, yeah. I mean, those are beautiful drawings. And, oh, you know, people often wonder, well, Dennis the Menace, you know, that it sort of fell out of favor. It's like, well, it's not about the, whether you relate to the humor or not. It's like, look at those drawings. They yeah. are amazing. They are just amazing. So, sorry. Anyway. Oh, no. And that's exactly <clears throat> one of the things that resonates in my mind over and over again. Whenever I think of Dennis the Menace, the first thing that comes to my mind is Hank Ketchum's line. Yes. And it's the first thing I, I think of. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can see it, you know, so clearly. And I think, you know, when you first go to art school, one of the things that they hit you over the head with in drawing classes, line weight, you know, and it stays with you and you yes. begin to appreciate it. You appreciate what it feels like to put it down on a piece of paper and, and you know, you enjoy that and, and revere it. And so Hank Ketchum is just, yeah. you know, one of those people whose line is just, oh, my gosh, so beautiful. Yeah. Do you know? And, did you ever know if he used a brush or a pen? I don't think I ever knew. He used a pen, and okay. I, th- I think he might have augmented it with a brush. But mm-hmm. um, and actually, uh, Ron, both Ron and Marcus uh, said that he introduced them to the speedball tip that he used, ah. and they had to use the same one. And both of them of still do, you know, use that. Uh-huh. I can't sure. remember. Is it Hunt's something or other? I can't remember. Um, yeah, there are some classics. There's a great old book called uh, Backstage at the Strips. Okay. By, I think Mort Walker wrote it. Okay. And it, it actually shows every wow. cartoonist of his era and what, um, you wow. know, what mater- what pen they actually used and, and how they did. It's fascinating. It's that a great is book. Yeah, because yeah, st- people like us were just like eating that stuff up. Yeah, oh, how do you get that? Well, line? I did in the beginning. It's how I. I mean, I'm a self-taught cartoonist. I, right. I did. I went to art school. I went to university art department for a couple of years, and you know, I, I had drawing classes and lessons when I was in high school. But you know, I knew how to draw. But as far as cartooning goes, I really had to learn all that by actually reading books like that. You know, how how do they do it? What materials do they use? You know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I went through a similar experience. And in fact, you know, when it comes to cartooning, uh, none of the classes, they just never offered classes like that. And so, you know, when we were growing up, and I I think I'm, uh, you know, about 10 years or so uh, younger than you. And and I know that folks around my generation, maybe up until 1970 or so, um, you know, that just courses weren't available and the material wasn't available. How do you learn how to do this? You know, what's you draw you know <laughs> oh i know you know i got some great advice who did i get this advice from it's funny the little things you get um and it might have been might have been mort walker that you take a cartoon out of the, you know cut it out of the newspaper as we used to that's the only way we got them originally yeah. and on a photocopier blow it up to the size you draw <laughs> that's right it's so and then you will be able to see like how big is the lettering supposed to be how big is the letting you know the li- the space in between the lines of the lettering supposed to be so that it reduces down and and prints you know and how heavy is the line and how dense is the cross hatching because it might surprise you it will surprise you um yeah. you know because it's nothing when i first was doing a weekly cartoon and boy i had some disasters in the beginning when i'd open up the paper and see what had become of my <laughs> cartoon because I wasn't using, you know, I just wasn't doing it right. Uh, and it's, it's a trial by fire. You learn pretty quickly, but yeah. But I, blowing up another cartoon to the size you draw, that was the best advice I ever got. It's like, Oh, now I see, I see what this drawing looked like when they started. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And it's so, you know, you think it's, it's such a simple idea. Of course, yeah. you know, you, you have to have a photocopier available and, and uh, <laughs> you know, and there was a period of time, you know, back in the day. Right? You had to go somewhere. Yes. You had to go someplace. <laughs> you know, I, you I, did. I, I did these comics that, uh, back when I was about 19 or 20. I did a whole series of comics that, you know, my my trial comic strip. And the sizes were just all uh, made up out of my head. I had no idea what size to do it, you know. And I remember going to a copy store to get these copied. And I had to drive like 40 minutes to get the copy store. (laughs) Oh, my God. It was crazy. And and then they didn't have the size machine because my drawings were too big. So then I photographed, uh, copy them half of one page at a time and then paste them all together after the fact is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, but listen, I, you know, in the beginning I couldn't afford a scanner that was big enough for my artwork. Oh, and yeah. so I was scanning my artwork in two pieces mm-hmm. and piecing it together in Photoshop. I got real proficient at it, but there was this day when my husband was trying to help me when I was behind, it was coming up on Christmas and he looked at me and he said, I thought you were a professional. We need to get you a, <laughs> a better scan. So I hope, yeah. And so you still work old school, right? And I do, and, I do. Yeah. Yes, I work so, with a, I work with a Gelat three hundred three, okay. dip pen, and uh, I, you know, India ink uh, on a light table, and um, I work on kind of a weird paper because I spent a lot of years as a graphic artist and. Mm-hmm. I got used to working with clay coat papers because they're so crisp. The line is so crisp. And uh, so it's, it's, and it's to other people, it seems very odd, but it does produce an amazing uh, line and you can enlarge it quite a bit without seeing any spidering of any kind. So really? Yeah. What's it called again? Clay coat paper? It's a clay coat. Uh, It's, you know, if you just think of a basic, it's not an expensive paper. It's it's what, um, for instance, a lot of book covers are printed mm-hmm. on. It, it mm-hmm. like there's different versions. We used to work, have one called Shasta that we worked on, but um, it has this light. It's not super glossy. It has this light sheen to it, and it actually is a clay coating, slight mm-hmm. clay coating, and that, so that the ink sits right on top of it. So oh, for yeah. printing of something like a book cover you know it's very bright and it but it also has this magic quality because it has this light clay coat if you have a sharp exacto and you make a small error with ink you can just scrape it off you can just lightly scrape you're not digging into the paper just scraping and the ink will will come off and so to fix perfect corners and things like that or a little bit of a mistake in a letter um you don't have to use white out uh, but anyway, it's, you know, a, a personal quirk of mine. I've never met anybody else who works on the kind of paper I work on, but it's cheap. I buy it at print shops. They cut it to me, to the, for me to the size of that I draw to this, to the strip size. And, uh, I have stacks of it and, wow. um, yeah, it's, it's great. And then <laughs> I, I used the letter with a speedball pen, but I switched when I heard that Jim Borgman uses disposable pens, I decided if it was good enough for zits, it was good enough for me. So, <laughs> so I went to using microns for lettering. I have to admit it is a lot easier uh, and a lot faster. Um, oh, I, and yeah, and I work on a light table, so it's pretty easy to end up with a very clean drawing at the at the end. Um, so you do your pencils I, on another piece of paper and then... I do the pencils on just on a cheap bond paper and then 
I created a um, I created a grid for drawing. It's uh, how do I, it's like it 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 has all the bo- possible box combinations mm-hmm. that I might need, mm-hmm. and it has the a lettering guide, and I just it's just also on bond paper, and I tape that to the light table, and then I use that to create the boxes and the lettering, okay. uh, so that it's you know. First of all, I don't have to measure every time, yeah. and you know, and the lettering always looks, you know, nice. You don't realize how important it is, but it, when you think about having something be legible in a newspaper, it it just works better. It's not the same as a graphic novel, you know, where it can kind of be more freeform. It, right. it just seems, you know, it's got to be legible. The eyes, it's got to be legible. Yeah. yeah, and then I get rid of that and I put the the drawing, the pencil drawing underneath and ink on top of it. So um, well, that's my know, favorite part of the process. It's is, like, it's so relaxing, you know, when all that, ink. Uh, just the inking. Yeah. It's just, it's like meditative, you know? Yeah, well it is. And, and you have a beautiful line, by the way. Uh, I really, I really enjoy the line and the flowing kind of quality of your forms. Val's hair is one of my favorite things. To, <laughs> you know, nice. Yeah. You do a great job with it. It's just the curls in her hair, you know, it's very, <laughs> Thank you. And the lettering is absolutely pristine. It's just beautiful. And it's one of the things that I talk about with students all the time because they they immediately want to just write the lettering any old way. And Uh I get them to buy an Ames lettering guide and sit down and practice because legibility is everything. Even if you Uh give it up at some point and go for a more free form, it's still got to it's got to be printed and it's got to be somehow or another. Right. Right. You know. If you if it can't be read, then it's it's of no use. So. Yeah, that's right. And it, like many things in art, you know, you learn to do it. You learn to do it one way, and when you're proficient, you know, with and comfortable with, you know, your skills, then you take liberties because yeah. you've you've already got the skill to do it one way, and you can, you know, what you need to do if you want to adapt it. So yeah. Well, yeah. thanks. I I love. Uh, I love working by hand. I have never been tempted to uh, switch to anything like a Cintiq. Uh, although I do use a Wacom tablet uh, with my computer for coloring. For I color. love that. It's easy. Yes. It's great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and that's another thing about this trip that's really beautiful. I mean, it's a, it's a I think it's a really, really elegant and lovely strip to look at. And one of the things the the coloring is just so like the rest of it it's so enjoyable and it's so unforced and it oh. seems so natural it's got a great thank you quality. yeah thank you I really so much i i have to tell you i uh i so struggled in the beginning with color because first of all in my years of graphic design i worked mostly in black and white so i was very comfortable i did a lot mm-hmm. of newspaper ads and you know i was just very comfortable with basic color and black and white but when I, I couldn't believe that I was going to produce this thing for the newspapers and I was never going to get a proof. Yeah. yeah there's no proof, you know, you just have to send and, it. And it and you just, send it <laughs> and hope. and in, in you, you know, you, you mock it up with markers or color. Well, in the beginning, okay. Way before digital. So in the beginning of my career, we actually mocked up a photocopy or uh-huh. put tissue over the drawing and with markers or colored pencils, you, marked in where the color was supposed to go and gave it a number from the guide that they gave you. And I mean, that is a frightening experience. Yeah. <laughs> because cause you, no, you have no idea. No you idea know? what it's going to look like. No. And, and when Pantone markers came out, 
was a little easier to get, you know, you could get a, a Pantone marker that is pretty close to the, the mm-hmm. CMYK colors that you're working with. And that was helpful. Um, but, uh, and, th- and then even graduating to Photoshop and doing it, you know, being able to print out the color, there's no guarantee that what you see on your screen and even what comes out of your printer is what it's going to look like in the newspaper because, you know, it's, everything's different, right? Yep. Every, everything mm-hmm. is different. So, man, I felt like I had so much to learn um, and so much trial and error. And I finally, one day when I was kind of frustrated, um, I've always admired, of course, Bill Watterson's work first oh, yeah. and foremost. Mm-hmm. And then um, this came into being about a year or two, maybe two years after my strip was syndicated. And I mean, Jim and Oh yeah. Uh, Jim and Jerry. Oh my God, that, that strip is so beautiful. And yeah. so one day I took the Sunday funnies, laid it out in my studio and I took my lettering guide. So I, I, it looks, um, I just, I cut it, I cut it up into strips. So it looks kind of like a Pantone book. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, so there's strips of color uh-huh. and I punched a hole in each block of color and I laid it, on the Sunday Funnies, trying to match what oh wow yeah Zitz was doing and what what Bill Watterson was doing because uh-huh. I admired their colors so much. It's like okay, I need to know really what these colors are because you can think you know by looking at it, and then when you actually you know get down on your hands and knees <laughs> and <laughs> up there, um, you may realize it's much lighter than what you have have been working with. So I kind of used um, uh, Zitz and uh, Calvin and Hobbes as coloring guides for a while <laughs> when I was just stumped at how to, you know, I, I feel like I have my own palette now and I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with my colors and I don't really feel the need to, I don't worry too much anymore, but boy, I, it was such a struggle in the beginning to, to feel like I was doing a good enough job. And I even got a, <clears throat> I'm, pretty good friends with Wiley Miller who does non sequitur and um, he's a big stone soup fan, which I have always been so flattered by it. He is a very frank person and he'll write and tell me, you have to quit using that color on Val. It doesn't work with her red hair. (laughs) (laughs) I love your strip. I want you, people need to be able to see your character's faces. You're using too bright of colors. It's not, you know, okay, okay, okay. So, uh, thank goodness for our peers, you know. Oh sure, yeah, it's yeah. great. It's great to it's great that somebody who loves it so much they just want everybody to feel the same way they do. Yeah, you know? I know, I know. It's so nice. It's, yeah. it's great. And he, he is a he is a wonderful colorist. My yeah, gosh. yeah, yeah. He's a, yeah. a great you know illustrator too. Yeah, but, yeah. He, oh yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah. But there, and there are so many wonderful ones, and you've identified you know three people who are great to learn from. I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yep. certainly Bill Watterson and, uh, um, and, you know, Zitz is just an incredible strip. I mean, they're yeah. all great and, yeah. and yours yeah. is one of them. So it's, it's wonderful. Thank you. And, you know, I have to, I have to say that I learned, you complimented my fluidity and I so appreciate that. And I really feel like I learned that from Bill Watterson. I, mm-hmm. I really spent a lot of time looking at how, how his characters moved and, and slouched and lounged and uh, because his stuff was just so beautifully fluid and uh, it's just, you can learn so much by studying the masters. It's really true. Oh yeah, absolutely. Sure. You know, there's something to be picked up no matter, you know, what level of experience you've got. 
there's something to be learned from everyone, you know? Yeah. And, and I think one of the things is to be, no matter what level you're at, is you, you, you're always, you know, we're cartoonists. We got into this because we love cartooning. We love looking at the work and, you know, you're always a fan. And, and so if you ever stop being a fan, it kind of, you know, loses the magic, you know? And, uh-huh, uh-huh. and uh, it's, true. it's true. You know? And so there's always yeah. something to, to be absorbed. You don't get to a point where it's over with. <laughs> you just keep right. And, uh, you <laughs> right. Know, yeah. Def- and there's so much out there. I'm always discovering new things, you know, I mean, you know, just, I, I, tr- I love to travel and, my gosh, some of the European cartoonists, the things oh. you can find, you know, just randomly in a bookstore in Prague or, I mean, oh my gosh, there's just some, in the Spanish cartoonists, there's just some incredibly beautiful work out there, oh, you know, yes. way beyond asterisks and the things we may or may not know about European sure. cartoonists, but oh my gosh. My, my wife, uh, you know, I just turned 60, right? So my wife, um, got, my wife went overboard with birthday gifts this year. And, uh, <laughs> she got me, th- this book just arrived yesterday and oh. it's Jaime Hernandez, uh, from love and rockets. I don't know if you know that. Oh, series. I do. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Jaime Hernandez, I love both Gilbert and Jaime Hernandez. Their work mm-hmm. is just astounding to me. And, and so involving and rich. And anyway, this book, it's an artist's edition of Jaime Hernandez. <gasps> and wow. it is exquisite. And, wow. you know, I'm just pouring over. The, I'm never going to uh, leave that book. Oh, wow. You know? What a nice gift. Good points oh. on your wife. Oh, she's amazing. You know, she's just wow. an amazing. She's wow. And uh, it, anyway, it's just it, it just hit home. You know, it's just like, oh, my yeah. gosh, this book is amazing. Anyway, it's just the kind of thing that if you are into this stuff, you never stop appreciating it and you never stop absorbing it and mm-hmm. lessons from everyone, you know, who's accomplished. And, and, and that's one of the things I look at your work and I see this things that I pointed out in regard to the, the, the quality of this quality that feels unforced about it. So natural is, is both in the artwork and in the writing, which just flows without and, it, you know, I don't know what the process is like for you, but it it never reads as though you've struggled. It reads as though it's just the natural flow of life. Oh, that's nice. It, it that's so nice. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, well you know, the writing is always first, you know. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and if you could see my notebooks, you'd see that there is a certain amount of struggle. Because <laughs> 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 there's a lot of things crossed out and, you know. But sure. I think... Um, I think one of the things I'm I, I'm proud of is that I think I'm good at dialogue. You know that that it's really yes. is conversational. It does not feel forced. And sometimes, you know, I, when I taught my class, for instance, or when I'm talking with a a student or a prospective cartoonist, it's like you have to realize nobody says that. What what you've written here, mm-hmm. that's not how a person would phrase that. You know, I mean, just have a conversation in your head between these two characters because what you've written does not sound like a conversation, you know? And, um, and I think it's a skill, you know, a person can learn. It's just that you have to, I mean, I, I speak my, I always speak my scripts out loud when I'm working. I always read it to myself. It's very different than reading it. And you'll realize the flaw if you read it to yourself and you start thinking about as if you were acting out of play, you know? Sure. Um, you'll get a sense of whether it sounds stilted or, you know, um, and then my characters are pretty real to me at this point. Yeah. So, 
I, I kind of say that the, those are the the two things. I mean, the the one thing is is absolutely you know even when, when something is unforced, it's usually the result of some of two things. You know, somebody has a natural talent for it, but also the amount of hard work that goes into it. it it's always the stuff behind the curtain, and and but when I read your stuff, that conversational tone is absolutely there all the way through it. And the other thing that that I think is very clear in Stone Soup is that the characters are very well-defined. Their relationships to one another are really well-defined. They, you, you know them and, yeah, and yeah. the way they interact with one another. And uh, that reads is very real, you know, very believable and, um, and comes across as authentic because, as you just said, you know, you, you know those characters. I, you know, one of the great privileges of being syndicated for 25 years as, you know, Getting, I mean, I've I've known these characters very well since you know the beginning, but it just gets richer and richer, and um, and the characters. Well, Mike, in my script, the characters don't age, but they do develop. You know, they have developed over time, and there there's this wonderful quote from you know Judy Chicago, the dinner. Oh party, sure. You know, yep. The di- in the dinner party, I have the book about the creation of the dinner party, and she was having trouble with a member of her team, a librarian who um, was supposed to be cataloging information about all these different women they were representing in the piece. And she was so excited about the project that she was kind of all over the map um, because she didn't want to miss anything, gathering maybe too much information or whatever. She was just not mm-hmm. being productive enough. And and um, Judy was trying to get her to limit her, her focus a little bit, you know, and she said, well, I, I, I can't, I'll, I might miss something. And there was this um, this amazing quote, and I put it over my desk when I was trying to decide for 100% if I was going to go into cartooning. So I was doing a lot of different, you know, had a lot of creative outlets and, and it's like pick something, Jan. At some point, you know, pick something and do it. And the quote is, um, focus has nothing to do with limitation and everything to do with expansion. Okay, yeah. yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, and I realized... So, so when people say to me, wow, how, how have you been doing that for 25 years? Aren't you sick of it? It's like, no, because it, it has just gotten bigger. You know, it just, it, it, focusing on these characters. I mean, I love my characters and I love the situation I set up and it's, it's very personal to me. I was a divorced working mom of two daughters. So, you know, it sort of initially came out of my life. Um, but you just get, you know, the more deeply you get into it, the bigger it gets and the more rich it gets. And I've just always, I've just always loved that, that it just gets, it just gets better and better and it gets easier and easier. It's not harder to write the strip after all these years. It's actually easier to write the strip because, you know, I know what I'm doing, but I also know my characters and there's so much, there's so many avenues for me on any given Monday, what's going to happen this week. Um, Sure. And you you have a great cast to play with. I think I do. Yeah. And there's a lot of variety and generations and, and, uh, and if you're brain dead, this is your, your students must all know this. It's important to have an animal because (laughs) if you're brain dead, you can always write for the dog. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) That's, that's true. Right. You can always go back to the dog or the cat. Always go to the dog. Yeah. And everybody loves the dog. So, you know, whatever you write about the dog, everyone will love it. So, always have a dog or a cat so that you know you've got a fallback 
<laughs> yes, you got it. You got to have that fall. I know it's, but and it's true. But you don't fall back on it too often. But no, you know, no. Uh-uh. The the dog biscuit, right? Uh, yeah, right. It's, it's still a wonderful character, and <laughs> you know, a dog dog, but thinks as well. So. Yeah. But that's great. But I, I really do think it, it is a result of, of knowing who your characters are and letting, in, you know, both controlling them. I know one of the things that I, I read in the, I think there was an interview with you or a piece about you on Go Com- the Go Comics page uh-huh. and a creator profile or something. And, and I think one of the things that you said was that you're always in control of your characters. And at the same time, it's interesting. I was thinking too, oftentimes you hear that the characters sort of determine their own direction in a way because of who. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, who they are. Absolutely. And actually, a great example I'm kind of, well, I I do feel like I'm in control of my characters, but on the other hand, my characters have refused to do things on occasion. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I. Uh, I love the story of how Officer Jackson, who is now married to Val, uh, Phil, character Phil, I was, um, honestly, he just imposed himself on the strip. I was was at the beach with my family, and I was unfortunately not on top of my deadlines enough, and I needed to get some writing done. So they were off having a grand time, and I was at the cottage, you know, trying to put together, I just had to write the the dialogue. I didn't have to do the whole drawing of the strips. And so it was one of those, like, I don't know, it's Monday morning. What happens? You know, well, when you're a mom and you're too busy and, you know, you're late for a meeting and that somebody forgot their lunch and you're, you know, you're always racing. And I, when in my younger years, uh, (laughs) I was stopped three times on the same street, residential street in my neighborhood by a motorcycle cop because I, you know, pushed a yellow light or forgot to put the tags on my car. They were in the glove box, but I hadn't put them on the plate yet or, you know, speeding once, you know. So I thought, okay, Val, it's Monday morning. She's late for work. Somebody forgot their lunch. She's trying to get to the school and onto her job and she's speeding and she gets pulled over by a motorcycle cop. <laughs> and and that was how we I introduced Officer Jackson. And he actually um, lets her off, which the motorcycle cop that pulled me over three times was also very kind to me. That's <laughs> uh, great. And, and basically, Phil says in the beginning, you know, you, you just seem like you got so much on your plate. I'm just going to give you a warning. And, you know, so and she asked him, you know, what if he was some kind of Zen cop, you know. Yeah, and, I love that line. Yeah. So anyway, you know, I just intended to him that to be a one-off. That was it. Okay, so that brings us to the end of part one of our interview with Jan Elliott. I hope you enjoyed that. Tomorrow or the next day or Monday's part, part two is even better. It's great. We really get into nuts and bolts and talk a lot about the mechanics of cartooning and and all kinds of other things, and I think you're really going to get a kick out of it. It's great. Jan is just such a great guest, and, uh, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, lots coming up. Uh, I'll be keeping you informed about stuff that's coming up. I've had some great conversations over the last couple of weeks with some pretty neat cartoonists. So uh, I will fill you in as we move along. And those shows, I hope they'll all be dropping on a regular basis and uh, pretty quickly. I hope, but it takes a little while. <laughs> it takes a little while for me to edit my gaffes out. 
Uh, hey, check me out on Instagram at Grogan Jeff on Instagram, G R O G A N G E O F F. Go there, be on the lookout. Uh, I, I'm working on a lot of stuff, and it's a place where I share some of that stuff. Um, you might, if you want to go even further and give me some support for this podcast and the work I do here, uh, check me out on Patreon, patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. And any amount that you consider or can uh, use to support this podcast and most of my other endeavors is greatly appreciated. Uh, it goes a long way and you will have my eternal gratitude. Next time, Jan Elliott Part 2. I look forward to seeing you soon. Hopefully it will be a brighter day. In the meantime, wear your mask in public. Be well. Be safe. Stay healthy. And thanks for listening. Thank you.